Hello and welcome back ladies and gentlemen to the Historical Humans Podcast. Today we are going to Southeast Asia. We're going to be talking about the Philippines. My name's Justin Woods and I'm joined today by my co-host Colm Coleman. Unfortunately, um, we think the Pinkertons might have finally gotten Aaron. Uh, more to be developed there. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, uh, our third head of the Hydra here uh, is unavailable with us this week, so he will not be joining us to discuss uh, Philippine barangays, which was a very, uh, shall we say, difficult topic uh, for our research department to tackle. Um, <laughs> Priest, uh, pre shut up. Uh, Pre-Spanish Philippines actually does not have a lot of publicly available uh, information and research on it, uh, especially uh, going into detail. This uh, subject in particular, the barangays, um, was something that had caught our eye a while back and was very interesting and something we hadn't really heard a lot about. And um, it turns out uh, most of the world hasn't either, so uh, you'll be... Uh, bearing with us, taking a little look at the collection of sort of everything we found uh, in miniature uh, as we go through this today. Yes, our uh, research department left a lot of uh, interesting notes on the show notes, uh, mainly just a descent into madness, which is weirdly documented. There are, there are several blocks of things <laughs> Justin do not say. <laughs> uh, that is one of them. Oh, uh, oh, okay. We, we knew he would be tempted, but... Anyway, to start us off on a more official foot here, uh, we're going to sort of define the Philippines because defining the Philippines uh, as a singular unit is actually a pretty big mistake when looking at uh, the historical pre-colonial barangays. Um, it's an incredible mistake, but uh, we'll get into why in just a minute. So the Philippines is a collection of over 7,000 islands off the coast of Southeast Asia. You can see the problem begins early. Uh, yeah, how did they count 7,000? Did someone just go through, or do you think that's like a guesstimate? Actually, no. That is actually what gave Spanish their quote-unquote right to the Philippines was the fact that they actually went through and painstakingly mapped the coastline of oh, the entire geez. thing. And that was what the Dutch... Portuguese and later English considered sufficient for Spanish to have a claim on the Philippines being Spanish territory. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Yes, it uh, is ours. We mapped it first, and everyone else was like, "Yeah, that looks like a pain in the ass. You can have it." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, it was a pain for the Spanish to manage, but that's not why we're here. Oh no. Uh, these seven thousand islands uh, contain a known one hundred and seventy-five ethnic groups and over one hundred languages and dialects. So, yeah, single entity, a totally unified polity. Clearly, yeah, yeah. This is making America look like a monolith, and that's and I'm talking like the continents. <laughs> uh, yeah. In fact. The Philippines was not treated as a uh, single polity until the uh, arrival of the Spanish in the 16th century uh, with the first Spanish expedition headed by none other than Ferdinand Magellan, oh, uh, a man famous for the circumnavigation of the world, effectively proving once and for all that, yes, the world is round. People, please stop. 
He fell off one end and just showed up at the other end. It's not... The world is not a spirit is a cylinder thing. <laughs> yes, I fully subscribe up. to cylinder earth theory. <laughs> we keep using worse shapes. Uh, next up, we're going to go to Pentagon Earth. <laughs> we already have one of those. It's in D.C. We don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the, the oh. Spanish in the Philippines, a story as old as the 16th century. Yeah, it's just, yeah, you know, past, you know, 500 years. Um, at the time of the Spanish arrival, only the island of Mindanao uh, possessed uh, any sort of unified political entity that was larger than the village level, that was bigger than a, what was effectively a barangay. Um, Mindanao is the second largest island in the Philippines. It is also um, the island on which uh, Islam was established. And due to the introduction of this you know, unifying religion, uh, sultanates were formed and sort of ruled over the uh, the barangays. This is the one place where you don't find uh, barangays as the predominant system of government. They're still there uh, when the Spanish arrive. Um, and uh, once again, these Philippines encompassed, you know, uh, you know, very sentiment, but like they had custom, uh, there was uh, 150 distinct ethnic, cultural, and linguistic groups. Um, the numbers do vary. We are giving you the different uh, estimates and measurements that have been taken from uh, various sources and sites. Um, there's not a lot of agreement on how much is still there, much less how much was there 500 years ago. It's kind of interesting because. There's a paradox in mapping called the coastline paradox, which basically states that the closer you measure a coastline, the longer it gets because you start measuring nooks and crannies and inlets. Well, when it comes to identifying ethnic groups and languages, it's much in the same because you can look at an overarching group and you can think that they're very unified and that they're of one entity, but then you start looking at the sociocultural or even linguistic differences among those subgroups and you just start like really branching off. That tree grows infinitely larger, the only a few branches up just because of that. So it becomes very difficult. And then you also run the issue, as Cullum mentioned, that over the course of 500 years, that changes, that shifts. Unfortunately, there are ethnic groups that do die out in it, and there are some newer ones that have splintered off since. Yeah. It's almost like culture and people evolve. Yeah. And uh, speaking of evolving, um, Your Pokemon just evolved? as the Philippines were not treated as a single, um, you know, polity until the 16th century, um... The concept of a unified Philippine nation, of the Philippine national identity, did not begin until the 19th century. Um, because getting rid of Spain is a wonderful reason to get everyone together for a party. You know, it's, it's very interesting when you see these former colonies, because you see a lot of different groups binding together to get rid of the colonial power. Like yep. the 13 colonies that all came from different yeah. parts and walks of life. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, Can no. Canada and their amicable breakup. Yeah. Anyway, 
Uh, and with that, um, we see, uh, you know, the modern government of the Philippines and the modern government of the Philippines uses barangays as part of their um, management of this, you know, very diverse collection of 7,000 islands. Hmm. Uh, in the modern term, uh, the barangay is the smallest unit of government in the Philippines. So every city, municipality, town, county, everything in the Philippines is comprised of barangays. Uh, there is currently, uh, as of the last uh, updated census in 2021, uh, 42,046 barangays across the Philippines. That's a pretty solid number, I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if only they added 23 more, they could have a really good number, but, you know, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is, um, that is more than 10 times the number of counties in the United States of America. But also, when you look at the size, they have a minimum population of two to 5,000. Is that, what's... Um... So, uh, in modern terms, there is a minimum uh, population required to fill a barangay. Um, the nearest analogy I have for this is when the United States was deciding what is and is not a state within its territory, there was a minimum population requirement of uh, several, uh, of, I think, what, 50,000, 100,000, something like that, you know, in order to be uh, considered for statehood and for to be considered a barangay. You must have 2,000 people uh, in a rural district, or 5,000 if you are in a urbanized location, like a city. So, I wonder what the actual equivalent of that would be, because when I think 2,000, I think of a fairly small town. Yeah. So, and you're talking, there's 42,000 minimum small towns. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And keep in mind, and keep in mind uh, that doesn't have to be a single town. A town of four thousand people can have two barangays. Uh, a city can have multiple barangays. Every city, every town, every county, everything is made up of barangays. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's like the homeowners associations have come to life and taken over. Oh no! Our neighborhood okay. doesn't stand for that. We only put out white peonies on Tuesdays. It's, it's a very cursed analogy, but... <laughs> yeah, it is... My, barangays are micro-governments. Okay, yeah, so um, not something that we're very familiar in the West. Yeah, um, and every modern barangay consists of a combination of appointed and elected officials. Um, as, so there's this sort of combination uh, of democracy and... Um, uh, shall we say, uh, government mandates <laughs> uh, going on, uh, which is very, uh, very Filipino uh, uh, in, uh, in how it works. And um, uh, the last thing we really have for you on the sort of modern barangays as they are is uh, a little bit of a linguistics lesson here that's going to come up a couple other times. Uh, but the term barangay uh, is derived from the word balangay, which is, depending on who you ask, a Malay and or a Tagalog term for the type of boats that brought the settlers uh, to the Philippines from Borneo and Southeast Asia. 
Now, Tagalog, like most languages in the Philippines, is an Austronesian language. It is a language native to the Philippines. Um, it is uh, like you know Mal all Malaysian languages and most Filipino languages, uh, Austronesian, and thus you know we really start mincing words when we try to define exactly uh, to what language the term Balangay uh, derives, seeing as how. Um, it's a minimum of 500 years out of date. <laughs> 500 uh, years? I mean, that's yeah. a, a drop in the bucket comparatively, right? Not really. Mm -hmm. uh, especially especially when we're talking about the transition from one word, you know, Balangay, to another word, Barangay. That happened at least 500 years ago with the arrival of the Spanish, if not far earlier as something that just is natural linguistic drift. Um... But yeah, <laughs> you know, with that, we're going to get to the matter at hand, which is uh, the Philippine barangays. Uh, these are the, you know, pre-colonial, pre-Spanish ones um, that we want to look Ooh, at. They were so the very hard. The more indigenous Filipinos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were very hard to find information on, uh, not least part because they share a name with the modern system of government. <laughs> Uh, that was one of the many obstacles we had to work around in finding information on this. So we hope, uh, you know, we hope we've done the work so you don't have to. But uh, the first barangays on the Philippines were likely coastal settlements resulting from migration from Southeast Asia. And uh, one of the lovely things that we have for this um, supposed origin is that both the archaeological record and the oral traditions uh, that have survived the 500 years uh, since, uh, you know, colonization, uh, they they agree on this. They agree on this matter. They agree that people came on boats and lived on the coast and the rivers. <laughs> um, the original villages that comprised these barangays uh, were, were often made up by the members of a single uh, Malaysian boat. Um, wow. So basically, you got off the boat, and that was your town. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you know, it's, uh, what's the, uh, uh, what's the joke? There is no, there is no history of America. Yesterday, we got off the boat, and today, we bathed in the river. I mean, that basically is any coastal settlement, though, realistically. Yeah. You find a safe enough harbor, you throw your, sh your supplies off the ship, and you get far enough back, the tide doesn't affect you, and you build up. Yep. Uh, yeah, and most of the early barangays were coastal or riverine in nature. Um, there it's is almost a like they got to the islands by ship. Yeah. yeah, there's a reliance on fishing for food. There's a reliance on waterways for travel. And in fact, we, we have traced a lot of the early uh, footpaths, roads, game trails, the things that the people were using uh, way, way back when these first ships got there. We've traced them, and they almost all just parallel a riverbank or a coastline. Like, will not leave sight of it, kind of paralleling. I mean, at the very base level, that's an easy way for navigation, too. You're able to see where you are. You're able to navigate and orient yourself. You don't get lost in deep forests. Yeah, and, this, and the Philippines, 
are not like flat open land. It is heavily forested. It is mountainous. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's not a particularly inviting environment for the people who live on the boat. <laughs> Which is why the Polynesians truly have like one of the biggest claims to humans will settle anywhere. Because Polynesia is not easy to settle. I mean, there's a lot of islands, but they're all volcanic islands. They're all densely jungled. They're all rainforest. You have to sail to get there. And they're just like, okay. They traveled all across the Pacific. We've proven that. Yeah, although I do think the number one prize for humans will settle anywhere goes to the people who live at McMurdo Sound. <laughs> See, <laughs> hello, Antarctica. <laughs> oh, God. But yes, um, these, um, you know, these settlements, uh, you know, they followed the riverbanks. Water was their was their travel, was their trade, was their food, and in fact, they traded a lot. They traded with a number of near and even some not so near entities. Uh, they traded with Japan, the Han Chinese, uh, India. And even uh, even the Arabs uh, who do come down and sort of proselytize uh, their way into uh, Mindano uh, and, uh, you know, uh, convert it. But you know. it's interesting, though, you see this seafaring group and obviously they're going to have really distinct trade routes because, well, when we're talking about coastal areas, so they're going to have to trade and bring in certain goods but also, when you have that kind of capability that other dynasties and other groups don't have quite as well developed, it makes trade so much better. You become that middleman. Yeah, yeah, that, it is. It is very good. Um, and uh, they actually, uh, you know, they they traded uh, primarily rice, spices, and aromatics, which is uh, which would be things like incense. Um, basically, they are selling car fresheners. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> Silk Road used car air fresheners. Yeah, yeah. To the Chinese, to India, and to Southeast Asia. Um, the Philippines do, I believe, interact uh, with the Indonesian empires, um, which were themselves empires of the sea, and so there's just a lot of love there and there is something I do want to take a moment to talk about here and just the fact that Japan gets mentioned very casually as a trade partner of the of the Philippine Borneos um, do you have any idea how horribly freaking hard it is to get the Japanese to trade with you <laughs> like pre 20th century Japan was incredibly isolationist for it, so much of its history. It, it, it's almost as though early Japanese resentment of the U.S. started after the U.S. blockaded one of their most popular ports to try and force them to open trade. I'm talking before that. Um, we have, uh, there is, uh, I don't know if it's written here, or later, it's written a few, uh, a few bullets down, but uh, we have confirmation of trade with China as early as 982 CE. Yeah, but Japan's a little different than China. Yeah, Japan's a little different. I'm, I'm just saying, like, we are, but the point is that the the, the historical relations are there. The, yes, are are doing this long before the United States of America is even a thing. Oh, I know, but just to emphasize how difficult relations were with Japan. Yeah, the U.S. the way they opened that door was just by you yeah. know shutting it. 
quote, Japan refused to trade with anyone until a certain U.S. Uh, fleet firebombed one of their cities uh, over the issue. Not to mention blockaded the port entirely. Yes, but it was the firebombing that really got things going, because even with the blockade, they said, you won't shoot us. Yeah, like I said, there's almost a reason why the resentment was built up, but, you know. Yeah, but that's, yeah, that's not that's not what we're here for today. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, the one of the really surprising things with the Philippines, and it actually isn't that surprising the more you think about it, but... Even with all these trade partners, the cultural influence from the rest of Asia is marginal. Um, the Philippines are so politically and culturally fragmented that, you know, the people trading with India aren't the ones trading with China, aren't the ones trading with Japan. And even when two different groups trade with China, they bring back different things. And so there is no one entity to influence and win over and sort of, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, what's the word for it? Uh, to acclimate to your culture. Or have you cultural diffusion, I think, is the word yeah, you're looking for. Yeah, specifically. yeah, yeah. You can't diffuse your culture into them because every village is an entirely separate nation. <laughs> well, and you can also just tell from that as well that you had specialized traders as well. Because if it was just everyday people, you would see that diffusion happen at a significantly larger rate. If it is specifically traders, and they are, you know, culturally um, similar to the people that they're also trading... I, not them, not that they're trade partners, but if they're all in a group and they're all specific traders, they're not going to lose that identity as easily. They're not going to introduce new characteristics into that group. Yes, and that that is a, that is, a, that is actually an important point. I probably should have put it up here just because you're making uh, making the connection. But there is um, there is actually a uh, tax uh, somewhere in here that is uh, uh, here is it's a uh, it's called Buis. It's a tribute um, and it is a tribute of primarily food uh to be taken not only from people uh, uh not only as like a tax from like the people who live in a barangay but also from any merchant who trades there <laughs> um so you know you can kind of see that like you know the focus is still on subsistence even as the specialized traders are being taxed you're being taxed not in money but in you know food goods yeah, I mean, we see that a lot with a lot of merchant sailors as well. Yeah, but imagine, just imagine the import tax. That'll be one shrimp cocktail. Oh, okay, sure. The priest is behind, like... Yeah. Some of your finest bluefin tuna that you caught on your trip. Yeah, yeah. Let's some... see if he's got that one. They pull out a giant fish, like, oh! Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. Additionally, uh, one of the things that makes uh, that makes you know sort of puppeting and putting you know your uh, foreign culture into the Philippines very difficult is the fact that the Philippines weren't colonized all in one go. It's seven thousand islands. There are multiple waves of uh, of settlement and immigration from multiple different places. Um. The, you know, for the most part, it's Austronesian, but anywhere in all of Southeast Asia is fair game for landing on the Philippines. 
Uh, and so because of this very diverse assembly of peoples, the barangays really don't see much political unity. There's not a lot of shared cultural identity between the different barangays. There's not even a lot of shared communication. And so, you know, you can, you know, completely, you know, uh, you know, Japinify an entire barangay and walk 20 minutes down the coast and come across someone who's never heard of Japan. It's, uh, it's a beautiful place like that. Um, additionally, the unifying factors uh, of Southeast Asia in terms of religion, which are primarily Buddhism and Hinduism, neither of those religions really reach the islands. They, they, don't, they don't convert over. Buddhism gets into Japan, uh, of all places, uh, so it's a very, um, it's a very, you know, welcome, it's a very much gets into your country kind of religion. Uh, you know, for, uh, you know, for all of that. And, uh, the one big thing that does appear to have an impact, though, is, uh, writing. Uh, the Philippines in general seem to have imported a form of uh, Sanskrit uh, from India. At which point it promptly you know, scatters like buckshot <laughs> across right, the eh? island. Yeah. And immediately everyone has their own take on it and no two oh, no. Uh, It sounds like the Philippines was just a hot shot for diffusion. It it's was, like, yeah, here's it was, a great idea. And now it's changed. Yeah. You remember how we said there's, you know, 42,000 uh, modern barangays? Well, the population requirement for even the most rural barangay is probably higher than the most populous barangay uh, prior to Spanish contact. So you're influencing several hundred people at best every time you give them something. <laughs> it's a uh, very few things. Um, <laughs> and uh, the this system really does show itself as a predominant form of social organization among the indigenous Filipinos. And with that organization, every um, everything from a company to uh, a nation to a homeowners association needs a head of state. And that job fell upon what is known as the Datu. And I'm definitely not saying that right. Uh, the Datu, uh, or at least the first Datus, were typically the captains of the boats that uh, reached the Philippines. Um, they would rule over a village established by their family, and from there, the Datu would typically be an inherited role. Um, your Datu would first inherit along lines of male primogenitor, you know, firstborn son, secondborn son, thirdborn son, so on. Uh, however, if there were no male heirs available, it would immediately switch over to female primogenitor and go along the lines of daughters. Should, for whatever reason, um, no uh, heir, no family of the Datu be present or available to succeed the Datu, the village would appoint one. Uh, the barangay would come together and appoint one, each with its own particular customs. Some might be considered uh, elective by, you know, modern democratic system systems. 
most were probably uh, a council of elders, priests, wise men, people of status, meeting in a uh, closed door to discuss which one of them should take power. <laughs> um, you know, it you know was eat you know it was to each their own with the barangays. The system you know varied wildly. It's my job. No, mine. No, I think I should have it. Well, I think we should nominate that guy. Yeah. The, uh, and fun fact, you could actually also win the job of Datu. Uh, if you could prove that you were a more capable leader during a crisis oh. or during a time of succession, you could, you could supersede the position. Um, this is, uh, typically because the Datu's primary jobs are to administer in peace and to lead in war. So if you can prove yourself to be charismatic and have good ideas repeatedly, you could um, you could take the Datu's job. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I personally imagine a lot of people went missing before that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, um, and uh, the power of these Datus is not absolute. It's very tempting to look at them and think of them as petty little kings of petty little hills. But these are not European monarchs. These are these are Barangay Datus, and so their power was very heavily bounded by traditions and customs of the individual Barangay, and these traditions and customs varied, and with it did the power of the Datu. But their um, their primary job was the collection of buis, which is tribute uh, in form of food paid from people and merchants to the Datu. The purpose of this was to primarily sustain the Datu and their family, uh, so that the Datu could spend the whole the whole of their time uh, managing uh, the needs of the people, because uh, the Datu does serve uh, as the chief judge executor and legislator of the barangay so making a new law you know settling disputes between neighbors dealing with the people from the barangay next door he has to deal you know that's the full-time job of the datu and so this food tax was so that you know the man running your country doesn't starve and you don't really have to pay him a salary the food tax the food tax yeah. Uh, yes, yes. America tried to implement one of these and people rioted. Oh, I still remember when Chicago implemented the sugar tax. Yeah. yeah do not tell Americans what they can't eat lately. Cases of soda went up by like $4 a case because it was charged per ounce. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely, lovely, lovely bullshit. Yeah. Um, now, these barangays, uh, the largest of them, by the arrival of the Spanish in the 16th century, contain between 30 and 100 families and would typically have a population of less than 500 people, uh, which means that it would take at minimum four uh, pre-colonial barangays to constitute one modern uh, municipal barangay in, uh, in the modern government of the Philippines. Uh, so these were, you know, very much not large. Uh, some of these barangays were so small they would contain less than 30 people, being only one or two extended families. Oh, hold on. I thought there was a limit. There was a minimum requirement for the barangays. For the modern ones. Mm. 
the pre-modern ones was just any group of people living under the laws of Adatu. God, just imagine you and your buddies are like, yeah, we're a barangay now. This yeah. is our commune. <laughs> we charge yeah. Joe for food. At which point, at which point, the larger barangays probably try to murder you. Hmm. <laughs> these, are, it, these are not these are not love, peace, and happiness kind of people here. All right, these these people defend what they believe to be theirs. We're very gonna, aggressively. We're gonna go hippie commune like doomsday bunker prepper. We're gonna have defensive fortifications, pitfall traps. We'll defend this barangay to our death. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, once again, larger polities did exist on the island of Mindano due to the conversion of that island to Islam and the formation of sultanates there. Um, now, these barangays, uh, they operated uh, much in the same way of a European city-state. There's a single central community that controls a periphery of territory um, that it claims. And that's about as far as the analogy go. Because um, unlike European city-states, a barangay did not have a set, defined uh, physical boundaries. Um, the uh, barangay did not claim any particular set of territory, but rather it was whatever area the current Datu and the current barangay could exert control over. Uh, and... Uh, with this, we come to sort of the definition of the barangay. It's not defined by, uh, like we would think of it as, you know, I'm, you know, Canadian or I'm Texan or anything like that. It's not defined about being from a certain place. It's defined by being loyal and having a connection to an individual dat, to an individual leader. So, you know, uh, in, you know, American policy, you know, it's, you know, I'm a Trumper, I'm, you know, Biden, I'm this, I'm that. It's you are swearing yourself to a leader, and whatever territory you inhabit with that leader is the territory. <laughs> when that leader dies, you swear yourself to a new leader, and whatever territory that leader has is the new territory you're associated with. Oh, no. It could be He's... mostly the same, it could be on the other side of the continent. <laughs> Combs dove into uh, modern politics. Run! Yep. Yeah, I'm doing it. But it is a very good analogy, and that's the only reason I bring it up, is people defining themselves by being very loyal to a, pol a single political figure rather than to a single geopolitical entity. Oh, come on. People have never done that. They have never aligned themselves with a single political entity and made it their entire persona. A single political figure, yep. A single one. But, yeah, no. And uh, so that's how it is. Everyone in a barangay is bound to the Datu. The territory and population of the barangay could change with the ascension of each new Datu. Uh, remember how we talked about people being able to up-jump uh, you know, the, the social ladder and claim that? He's not well, doing a good enough to... job. I will do better. Welcome, welcome to the schism and the fission. One barangay becomes two. As one, you know, strongman dies out, his successor doesn't hold on to all of it, and we split. Oh no. We split. <laughs> and you're wondering why the Spanish were coming across ones with less than thirty people. This is a barangay system is very easy to divide and very hard to unify. Because it's all about who are you personally invested in. 
I could only see issues and schism, schisms coming from that, honestly. Oh, yeah. It gets worse. Oh, no. How, how um, can it possibly get much worse? Besides the Spanish invasion. Because, <laughs> no, because uh, the barangay system did not uh, have a sedentary lifestyle. Uh, there was a constant shifting of territory, uh, even when the barangay was stable under a single datu. Uh, as they did a form of shifting cultivation, which is just sort of this, you know, not quite agriculture, but sort of, you know, we're encouraging certain plants to grow in general and then just letting them grow like wild grain. It's a strategy that a lot of modern uh, gatherers take in that what they'll do is they'll, they'll harvest something and they'll harvest it in a certain area and that kind of becomes that specific area and in terms of a lot of cultures and civilizations, what they'll do is they go, hey, the berries are blooming. Let's go move over here for a little bit. Oh, hey, apples are blooming. Let's go over here. Hey, these wild stalks of rice are growing. Let's go over here. And they just basically kept hopping between where the resources were the most readily available. And usually this did tie into seasonality. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they also supplement this with hunting and fishing. And in fact, the only place where we have uh, agriculture uh, is in the mountains of northern Luzon. Luzon is the largest island of the Philippines. And there, rice terraces date back 2,000 years. So clearly a good area for agriculture. It's a very, it's a very good area for specifically rice. Uh, the geography is perfect. Well, and uh, the crazy thing, too, just kind of going off on a side tangent for a moment... One of the things that's really important and that people should note in reference when we talk about this stuff is rice per acre provides more calories than pretty much any other substance that can be grown. Their calorie per acre just allows populations to explode and that's why you do see large jumps in populations and of groups in these regions is because the land can actually support it. Yeah, yeah there, there's a reason why... Uh... Luzon is uh, home to Manila, the capital of the modern <laughs> uh, It's not just because the island is big. It's because it's also where the food is. Easily grown, yeah. I mean, yeah, you, seem, yeah. you see that settlement pattern across the world of where you can grow food regularly, people will settle down and build cities. Yep. And empires. Yep. Yep. And empires. Yep. Those cities... Unfortunately, are Spanish because <laughs> that's uh, the administrative there. But uh, back to the barangays themselves. Um, there are three distinct social groups in the barangays, and it's actually kind of interesting calling them uh, social groups because you really do have to. You cannot call them classes uh, because of just how fluid uh, class mobility is within a barangay. Uh, the first group is the Datu, their family, and other associated nobility. Uh, this group is defined as basically the ruler of the barangay and the people directly associated with them. Um, this is, you know, the people, you know, very much on, on the top. This is essentially the government, which is, you know, the head of state and their family, for the most part. Oh, of course, then, nepotism. <laughs> yeah. Then there are the freeholders. This is, this is anyone who lives in a barangay that's not in debt or poverty, but also is not directly associated with the Datu. 
This is where most people uh, end up residing. And then finally, there are dependents. These are sharecroppers, debt workers, and prisoners of war. Um, and uh, this class system was very much not rigid at all, as uh, there's a very strong social mobility, so much so that status, though inherited from generation to generation, rarely lasted more than two. Um, as uh, there is both frequent interclass marriage and manumission as a form of reward was common. Uh, manumission is when you release someone from servitude. Uh, it would basically be the equivalent of announcing uh, a debtor or uh, that their debts are cleared or that a prisoner of war is free to go. You are no longer holding someone in servitude. Wow, you can actually gain your freedom? Yep. Yeah, it was a very common thing of in the Philippines of just them going, yeah, you're, you know, you're my sharecropper, you're my debtor, because you owed me, you know, 12 baskets of fish. You worked that off. You're free. Wow. Yeah. That's a system yeah. you don't see very often where, oh, your debts are actually paid off? Okay. Now in the U.S. it's like, sign this predatory loan. Oh, yeah. now you owe us money. Yeah, and there's a reason for that. And that's because more often than not, it takes very, very little for the debtor and the debtee um, to become related. As not only is the community small, but also um, the barangays were defined in terms of bilateral kinship. What this means is that patrilineal and matrilineal lines are treated with equal importance. So your father's fathers and your mother's mothers are both considered key aspects of your kinship system of your family of your relations um, these are kept track of going back as far as possible uh, Europe does this a lot but only with the patrilineal line and so when you track both lines uh, what ends up happening is as soon as someone gets married uh, you suddenly find out that you know his mother's mother's mother is also my mother's mother's mother. <laughs> and thus, I am now keeping a family member in servitude. And that is wrong. Therefore, I must release this man. Dang, so family ties can actually get you out of it. <laughs> yeah, especially given the fact that there appears to have been no taboo or ban on marrying someone of lower social standing which means it's entirely possible for someone at the bottom of the totem pole to marry into the Datu's family, at which point holding that person in bondage becomes very politically inconvenient. <laughs> you know, just like, you know, it's like, yeah, I got the president's cousin working in my sweatshop. I should probably not be doing that. Oh, you mean good old Bill Biden? <laughs> oh, God, here we go. Demonetization. Here we go. <laughs> oh, they won't demonetize us over that joke. Uh, you never know. Um, <laughs> and another very interesting that comes out of this bilateral kinship is because your the female line is considered on on par with the male line. Divorce is socially acceptable uh, and does in fact happen as. Uh, as uh, you know, when you consider the fact that you know, uh, you know, women hold 
you know, equal standing in determining your lineage, well then, women also have the right to leave a marriage. <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, women so, have the right <laughs> to divorce? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to add that to the list of things that freaked out the Spanish when they showed up. Oh my god, and the, the beautiful part of that is the Spanish are coming in, like, Catholic to the bones, like... They had witnessed the schism in England only two centuries prior, like... Yeah. Um, and this is... Keep in mind, this, this is 16th century Spanish. These are Inquisition Spanish. Nobody expects the Inquisition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and speaking of Inquisitions... Oh, no. Uh, we're going to talk about the religion. Oh, no. So... Religion, social structure, and economic system within the barangays is as highly uh, diverse as the barangays themselves, which means that there's about, you know, several hundred thousand different versions of everything. The giant, like, infinite combination lock for uh, these people. Uh, as the, as, you know, the social structure and economic systems were known to change not only from barangay to barangay, but also from datu to datu as leaders made adjustments to uh, how they felt things should be run. Uh, this is, uh, there's in fact so much uh, variability in these systems that even the smaller islands uh, display considerable diversity in terms of their politics, economics, and philosophies, as well as their religious systems. Yeah. It, it's just, it, I find it very interesting that there's so many microcosms but that's kind of the nature of having all these different islands and different barangay micro groups yeah and and it's only because the spanish claimed the entire section as its own like region that the philippines are even really initially considered an, a single entity instead of what they are which is you know this multi-ethnic multicultural uh multi-religious you know conglomerate it's not a unified polity. It's, you know, it's, it's probably more diverse than the United States in some ways. Well, that's that's insane. Yeah, and the fact that they were able to do it in a system that somewhat worked and wasn't nearly as divisive, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Now, the, the first uh, religious hierarchy uh, did emerge... Uh, with the arrival of the Islam in the 15th century, just a hundred years before the Spanish. And uh, with this, uh, there was the establishment of two sultanates, uh, one in Mindano and one on the Sulu Archipelago. Uh, I hear that one likes fencing. <laughs> uh, and the sultanates were the first thing that sort of superseded the barangays as a combined religious and secular authority as the sultanate would rule over a number of barangays and effectively serve as the default, you know, form of government instead of the barangays. Uh, it's not to say that barangays didn't uh, cooperate or form conglomerates. They did, and we'll discuss those later, but as far as a larger unified political entity existing, it was really just these two sultanates. Um... When the Spanish do arrive, uh, they record most of the religions as animism and move on. Uh, what animism means is it's effectively the 
catch-all term for any belief system that holds spirits tied to this world. Um, so if you talk about, you know, uh, the spirit of your ancestor, if you talk about personifying the river or the sun, you're animistic. That's it's such a non-starter term. Well, uh, and in ways. And the frustrating thing is the Spanish, especially as we made a joke about the Inquisition, the Spanish were noted were um, notorious for their whole um, conversion or die methodologies. Yeah. And obviously, we know that the Philippines is a very Catholic area now, and, you know, there's only one way for that to happen, so let's dive into that. Yeah, the Spanish set about converting the island to Catholicism. Now, we do have some records of what they came across. Uh, The primary practices they seem to have encountered were ancestor worship and communions with guardians of nature, which are themselves very common practices uh, in a number of religions and spiritual systems. Uh, the concept that nature is a personifiable force or that our ancestors had souls and we can talk to them is pretty baseline human spirituality. Uh, They do, in fact, uh, record a handful of these religions in more detail. And we do have a few details, uh, and by details I mean snippets, on on three uh, different Filipino uh, ethnic religions. Uh, the first is what is referred to as the Visayans. Uh, these people are recorded as worshipping their ancestors, worshipping the spirits of nature, and having gods uh, of particular locations and activities. And that sounds very vague uh, because it is. The Spanish weren't interested in details. And uh, if you think about it... Uh, that actually could describe uh, effectively the entirety of the Greco-Roman pantheons. (laughs) Because uh, spirits of uh, places and specific activities. Meet uh, Athena, the goddess of war and weaving. Meet meet the nymphs, the goddesses of this particular spring. You, You understand how very, very, very quickly it's like this very much qualifies as a complex sophisticated religion ah uh, but uh, they just worship trees and animals according to the spaniards like yeah. i know and there's obviously some remnants of this that have survived and perv uh like pervaded they never fully die out but it just it is sad that we lost all of this stuff well, the good thing is we didn't lose all of it because one of the things I found when I was researching this and had to go through a lot of the uh, Spanish colonial times is Spain was actually very bad at administering most of the smaller islands. And a number of them only really found out they were ruled by the Spanish when the Philippines declared itself a nation. <laughs> God. So some did survive. <laughs> Just, you know, keep in mind 7,000 islands at least 150 distinct ethnic, linguistic, and cultural groups. And the th- there was damage done. Well, also, let's not forget that the Philippines were also controlled by the U.S. for a period of time. And we know how good the U.S. has been at, uh, at cultural uh, respecting, at Respecting indigenous value systems. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I don't know, you can't, can we even say the word respecting in the same sentence? 
Uh, not until the the Treaty of Fort Laramie is respected, but you know that's a whole. Hey, if we have any indigenous listeners, I that the shout out. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, some someone someone put that down for a potential future episode uh, come next season. Oh, the Treaty of Fort Laramie. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. Let's let's start let, 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 let's start a fire. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's like. Uh, a lot of the stuff we have here is very, very vague and very purposely vague to make it seem mysterious and primitive, when in fact, it's probably not. Uh, the next group we have uh, a record we found a record of is what is known as the Picolanos, uh, which uh, the we do have actually more details on that are really available because of how um, bizarre the Spanish found them. Primarily because uh, these people had female shamans called uh, Balian, who delivered their prayers in song and claimed to speak with the voice of the departed. Um, so, you know, naturally uh, singing women channeling uh, their uh, ancestors, uh, that definitely caught the eye of the Spanish. Uh, not the least of which because apparently allowing a woman to do things is exotic to these people. Well, I mean, you do see female shamans across the world. You see them in different yeah. cultures. I mean, even the Spanish had the nuns. So yeah. I wonder if to them this is some bastardization or some twist off of that because, you know, even though they were world-adventuring you know, high sea sailing folk, they still always somehow ended up back in Rome, you know? Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things I did find uh, was there were some scholastic arguments being made uh, for inclusion of um, potentially, um, I believe, trans people uh, within the uh, Bicolanos as a, uh, as the Spanish do record male Balians as well. Um, however, those seem to be exceptions rather than the rule, and they appear to have conformed to the female code of dress. Um, which was an interesting scholastic argument. Uh, we will probably never know. <laughs> um, as, uh, as, again, you know, it's an exception to a rule of a system that has been largely devastated for several hundred years. Um, the final group that we have for uh, religious recording that uh, I was able to dig up was the Tagalogs. Uh, yes, those uh, wonderful people uh, whose language uh, gives us barangays, <laughs> uh, the term itself. Uh, we actually have a deity for the Tagalogs. They actually recorded a name of a deity, uh, which is Lakapati. Uh, who is a hermaphrodite deity, a uh, deity possessing both male and female genitalia, that was worshipped uh, during uh, the, uh, I believe, the planting season uh, out in uh, open fields as a sort of, uh, as a very much a fertility deity. Uh, you know, with the obvious connotations there. <laughs> and, uh, as we said before, some Filipino religions are still practiced, but for the most part, there has been a lot of devastation, uh, you know, to the indigenous practices, which is a shame. 
but uh, that is what happens with colonialism. Um, and the Philippines have 500 plus years of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, each and uh, with uh, that's going to bring us to our final segment uh, here today is uh, you know even though each barangay exists as its own political entity, even though as we have been saying, it is you know the baseline of politics and society and culture. Um, that does not mean that they didn't ever come combine to form something larger. Uh, on occasion, barangays would organize themselves into loose confederations, um, the head of which would be chosen from among the Datu of the barangays uh, within the confederation. This Datu would be known as a pangulo, and it was the duty of the pangulo to resolve disputes between its member barangays. Uh, the pangulo was only allowed to make decisions uh, that uh, involved multiple barangays. Uh, each individual barangay retains its own internal jurisdiction, and these confederations could overlap. Uh, one barangay could belong to multiple different confederations, and it is through these uh, confederations that the barangays were able to um, sub more substantially link themselves to Asia. It is uh, with them they were able to affect uh, better trade uh, because going in mass together is better than just wandering in one at a time and potentially getting in each other's way. <laughs> and uh, so there's this sort of loose confederation. Uh, these alliances would tend to dissolve and have changing member states pretty frequently as the you know, political existence of a barangay is entirely dependent on the uh, life of its lifespan of its leader. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, with each, you know, death of an individual Datu, a barangay could leave or join confederations or simply, uh, you know, motion for a change in the, uh, you know, Pangulu of the confederation as, you know, they kind of, you know, it's a very fluid system because it's not trying to control anything beyond, hey guys, wouldn't it be great if instead of punching each other every time we see, we actually just talk things out? <laughs> Why would you do that? Come on. Come on. Uh, I don't know. Sounds an American. No, see, the true American is to scalp your enemies. You have a disagreement, the only way to pay for it is your skull. Well, that was dark. <laughs> I was just going to export freedom, but okay. I'm <laughs> still thinking about the Treaty of Fort Laramie. I'm sorry. Yep. Justin, Justin, yeah. yeah, I've noticed Justin has been brooding uh, for most of this uh, recording here. Uh, Fort Laramie is going to be a large part as to why. Oh, there's so much to say. Yeah. And uh, so if you've uh, made it this far in the video, if you want to see us do Fort Laramie uh, come next year with Season 3 of uh, Historical Humans, uh, be sure to leave a comment saying, what happened at Fort Laramie? Ooh. Well, depends on ask when us, we're talking. Yep. Yeah, ask us what happened at Fort Laramie and... Uh, We'll see if we make it appear uh, in <laughs> next year's uh, settlement. But, yeah, I think, honestly, I think we got a pretty decent amount of information covered with the Barangays. I mean, it's a shame that Aaron uh, had to meet an unfortunate demise. Uh, that is He's what... alive, mostly. Uh, allegedly. <laughs> but, uh, with that, we will be leaving you. 
yeah thank you guys for watching if you enjoyed today's episode drop a like down below if you want to see more content like this please be sure to subscribe and like Colm said before, if there's a topic you would like to see us cover in a future podcast, please be sure to leave it in the comments down below or the show notes, because, you know, we're trying to find ideas for the next season. It's not like we have a 300-page document full of ideas or anything, but yeah. See you guys.